Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. As I mentioned earlier this week, we start a new series on the book of Ruth. Uh, At only four chapters, it's one of the most beautiful short stories in all of human history. It's a love story that opens with a tragedy and ends in redemption. The story captivates our attention as we consider both the tremendous loss that the main characters endure, as well as the remarkable character of the story's heroes, their loyalty, goodness, generosity, that leads not only to full restoration, but also to an enduring legacy. Uh, As I mentioned, we decided to call this series on the Book of Ruth, There and Back Again, an Israelite's Tale. But since I'm a country music lover, uh, the title of Ruth chapter 1 is God Bless the Broken Road. And uh, I love country music. I regularly cry at Hallmark movies. I listen to country music and weep constantly. I was weeping during the 8 a.m. service. It was embarrassing. Um, Just the way God made me. But I'll try not to be a distraction. So the chapter that we're looking at, Ruth chapter 1, breaks into two parts. Both parts are packed with irony. The first chapter, or the first section, verses 1 through 5, illustrates tragic irony. The second section, verses 6 through 22, illustrate redemptive irony. Now, kids, you might be asking, what's irony? Is that the same as sarcasm? Well, sarcasm is a form of irony, but irony is more situational. Let me illustrate. A stonecutter was asked, what is the most memorable epitaph you've ever inscribed for a gravesite? His answer, nothing is inscribed in stone. He actually inscribed that. That's ironic. That's an example of irony. Words used to express the opposite of their literal meaning. Situational irony is when the actual result is the opposite of what's expected. And as we read through the whole book of Ruth, we will discover lots of irony, sometimes tragic, and at other times beautiful. And as we follow the narrative, we'll see how God trumps tragic irony with redemptive irony. And as we'll see, sometimes faithfulness and faithlessness are found where we least expect it. For sometimes we will see alarming faithfulness among God's people. Uh, I'm sorry, alarming faithlessness among God's people. That's what makes it ironic. And remarkable faithfulness among outsiders. So we start with tragic irony, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she left, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, The name of one was Orpah, 
and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilian died, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons or her husband. This is a tragic story. And what makes the loss so tragic is not just the amount or the significance of Naomi's loss, but the number of unexpected factors leading up to the loss. As I mentioned, it's full of irony, and and we'll see that in three ways. There's sort of a communal or a national irony, there's a personal irony, and then there's this situational irony. Let's start with the communal. If we look at this, this is an Israelite family from Bethlehem that flees to Moab during a famine. Now, Bethlehem, if you don't know, literally means house of bread. So to the Hebrew ear listening to this story, it would have sounded like this. There was a famine in the house of bread. Now, why did the house of bread have empty cupboards? Well, as we see in verse 1, this story takes place when the judges ruled. A time described later in Judges chapter 21 as a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes... For there was no king in the land. Now that last phrase, there was no king in the land, had a a double meaning. First, unlike the uh, surrounding nations, Israel at this time had no human king. But secondly, unlike the surrounding nations, they didn't need a human king because Yahweh, God, had promised to be their divine king. And they were to trust in his provision and protection, for he had proven more than capable to deliver them from Egypt and to allow them to settle and conquer in the promised land. He enabled them to defeat their enemies. But in the days when the judges ruled, Israel had rejected the Lord as king. And so the statement, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in the land, was, was not just a clever pun, it was a piercing condemnation on Israel. Yes, they had no human king, but neither did they serve the divine king. Israel had rejected God. And the question is, why? Well, they preferred to be like everyone else. They wanted to fit in with the surrounding culture rather than stand out. And by worshiping man-made idols... They had some advantages, not only being accepted by surrounding nations, but these gods were less demanding. They're easily appeased by simple rituals. Smaller gods that don't fuss about how you live and about moral standards or repentance or even justice. Now there's a lesson to be learned here. It's always tempting to want to fit in rather than stand out. And religion as a social construct has always been easier to entertain than the prospect that there is one God, one truly sovereign God with whom we must reckon. Now, to add insult to injury, Israel had not just rejected God once, but but repeatedly. The book of Judges reflects a downward spiral of ungodliness, and at the beginning of each cycle, Israel would would rebel against the Uh, God more and more grievously. And God would respond accordingly with, with judgment, sometimes through other nations, whether he would allow other nations to rise up and, and raid them or oppress them, sometimes through famine, as he does here in the book of Ruth. But God is like a loving parent in his discipline and judgment. His goal is to soften and turn the heart of his stubborn people, his stubborn child, 
That's why God brings punishment, to bring Israel to their senses, to help them wake up and repent, to turn back to him. And when they did, God would deliver them. He would send another judge to deliver them. And you would think that, you know, well, after God delivers them and everything's set right again and they're, they're living in the land and they're no longer oppressed and they're, they're enjoying God's blessings, you, you'd think that they, they'd learn their lesson. But they did not. And instead, the next generation of Israelites would repeat the same mistakes and the cycle would start all over again. So that's the context within which Ruth is written. These were very difficult days when Israel was living under the judgment of God. And there's the national or communal irony. The the people who should have been loving God and blessing his name and obeying him, the one who were called apart to do that, are not doing it at all. How ironic. Now, there's a personal irony just because the nation wasn't obeying God and because they had rejected God doesn't mean everyone in the nation needed to do that. And so we turn to the personal story of Elimelech. And Elimelech had a choice to make. As Ian Duguid said, he he could stay in Bethlehem, the empty bread basket of Judah, mourning the sin that surrounded him, but trusting in God to provide for him. Or he could leave the promised land behind in search of greener fields, in this case, the fields of Moab. Well, Elimelech chose Moab. And the irony thickens because Elimelech, if you don't know, his name literally means God is king. But this man does not seem to trust God as king, as provider, as protector. Rather, his life seems to be a tale of disillusionment. And his despair is reflected in the naming of his two sons. He names one of them Malon, which means sickness. He names the other one Kilion, which means failing or wasting away. And so as we put all the pieces together, this man's life, it's a heartbreaking picture, right? I mean, here we have a famine in the house of bread. We have a man who mocks his namesake because he does not live as if God is king. And he names his kids weak and pathetic, Now, as sympathetic as some of us might feel about Elimelech's major life disappointments, Elimelech's reaction was not okay. It was not morally neutral. The choice to move from Israel to Moab was not like the choice to move your family from Lancaster to Baltimore. Rather, like Esau, what's happening here is that Elimelech is forsaking his birthright, his inheritance for some food for a bowl of soup. He was abandoning the promised land. He was neglecting to remember that God had delivered his people from slavery once in Egypt. He had given them the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And and God promised, this is our home. I am your God. You are my people. Stay with me. Be with me, not just when I make life easy, but through thick and thin. When life is easy and when life is hard, you belong to me. But Elimelech decided to separate from his Lord and to go down to Moab. And Moab, if you didn't know, was known for immorality and ungodliness. The Moabites originated from an incestual relationship between Lot and his daughters. King Balak had actually paid the prophet Balaam to pronounce curses on Israel. Moabite women tried to seduce Israelite men into false worship of idols. 
And most recently, in the early chapters of Judges, the Moabite king Eglon had oppressed Israel. And so here we have Elimelech, God is my king, turning to Moab. He should not be turning to Moab for help, but to God for help. And at first, it seems like Elimelech is just, you know, testing the waters. For if you look at the beginning of verse 2, it, he only meant to sojourn in Moab for a while, but by the end of verse 2, somewhere in the middle there, he decides to remain. That's how the human heart often justifies things, isn't it? We're not content with the situation God has put us in, so we, we flirt with other things. Not yet committed to going there, but when we get there, we decide to stay. And the fact of the matter is, when we move into that other situation, and it means moving away from God, often there is temporary relief. And this brings us to the, to the third irony, the, the situational irony. Because it's always tempta- tempting to seek relief through disting, distancing ourselves from God and his demands or his commands. And yes, change often brings a form of relief But eventually, as we see here with Elimelech, things turn out for the worse. Elimelech dies, and both his sons die, and his wife, Naomi, is left destitute. As one commentator put it, the road to Moab, excuse me, the road to Moab turned out to be the road to nowhere. And after Elimelech dies in verse 3, the family could have returned back home. But instead of returning home, Naomi decided to stay and marry off her sons to Moabite women, even though the law of God forbid, forbid her to do so. And here's the first sign that Naomi probably was not a passive agent. She wasn't simply a victim of a foolish and disobedient husband. Despite the grass being just as brown in Moab, Naomi stays for 10 years until not just one, but both of her sons die. It's a tragic story. The road to Moab turned out to be the road to nowhere. How ironic. How does this apply? Well, first of all, we need to ask ourselves, is God worthy of our worship and praise just because he's God or only because he makes our life easy and blesses it with good things? Will we still worship him as God when we go through the famine, when we go through difficulty, like Elimelech and his family was enduring in the famine that hit the promised land? Or will we quickly say, well, you can't be good, God. You can't be for me. You wouldn't allow me to go through these hard things. If you were God, you would only give me good things as I define it. You are not worthy unless you do for me what I want you to do. You're not worthy unless you serve me, in other words. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to serve God simply for who he is? He is Lord and he is worthy and that is why we worship him, whether he gives us good things or not. Secondly, will we read this story and take warning? Take warning. It's so tempting when we're going through difficult times to think the grass is really greener on the other side. Will we take warning when we think and tempted to think that God's ways are too demanding, that waiting on the Lord is too hard? Will we take warning that the easy promises and the quick solutions of the ungodly won't last? It doesn't provide more. It provides less. Will we take warning? 
In summary, this is a tragic story. And it's tragic whenever the people of God refuse to wait on the Lord and trust God during hard times. But such faithlessness is unfortunately not uncommon. Always tragic, but not uncommon. And while we must take warning, as the people of God, we also must not despair, for God's hand is never too short to rescue. Some of you might be here this morning because it's a New Year's resolution to go back to church, but you've already walked down that broken road that's led to nowhere. And you're here wondering, is this even worth it? And I want to encourage you, it is good that you are here. Because even after you've taken the road to nowhere, God meets you where you are to bring you home. He blesses the broken road. And this leads to our our second irony in chapter 1. And the second irony is not like the irony of tragedy, you know. It's not like the irony of famine in in the house of bread or the irony of a man named God as king who refuses to trust God as king or the irony of thinking life is better by separating from God and going your own way only to find out it's worse. No, this is a beautiful irony as the, as the story shifts to redemption. And the redemptive irony is illustrated in three things. First, Naomi's imperfect repentance. Second, Ruth's unquestioning loyalty. And third, Naomi's blinding pain. Let's just walk through it. Verse 6, Naomi's imperfect repentance. Then she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. The poem Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson illustrates the point well of what is going on here in this passage, that God pursues souls fleeing him like a hound on the chase. See, according to God's sovereign goodness, he, he oftentimes he'll draw nearer and nearer with, with a determined yet unhurried love. Now, unfortunately, that experience of being chased down by God is, is very terrifying if you're not convinced that God is loving and good. It feels more like you're in one of those horror films where you're, you're trying to outrun the guy with the knife, only no matter how fast you run, he's just walking slowly, and yet he gains ground. This is exactly how Naomi must feel. She's back. Naomi's decision to turn back, though, seems more like exhaustion than surrender, more like desperation than repentance. If you look at verse 6, she's just out of options. She has no no land, no husband, no children. She's utterly bereft of any support by their death. But she's heard rumors that there's food again in Bethlehem. And so she goes back. But she only decides to go back when there's nowhere else to turn. She's hoping she can eke out enough to sustain the rest of her miserable life. All out of options, she turns home with bitter resolve to just survive. Now, before I continue, we must pause to notice something here. If we miss it, we miss the first irony of biblical redemption, and that is this. God receives those who come back with imperfect repentance. God receives those who come back, and you are still caught up in your selfishness and your anger and your bitterness against him. You're not coming back in humble sorrow, but in self-preserving self-pity. What kind of God would accept someone back who only came back because they had nowhere else to turn? 
Not because they love God, not because they're sorry, but because there's nowhere else to go for food. Not because of who you are, but only because of what you can give them. Don't the religions of man teach that man must grovel before God? They must earn their forgiveness with tears? That's why this story is so ironic that based on what Naomi thinks of God, we expect God to say, forget you. But instead, we see a gracious heavenly father who is going to work with her even as she evidences half-baked, imperfect, bitter repentance. What a patient and humble and gracious God to accept a person back who mourns only their sad circumstances, not their broken relationship with their Redeemer. How does this apply? If you're here and you're considering turning back to God and you're thinking, I, I, you know, I just got to get it right before I do this. I, I got to make sure I get it right. Don't wait until your motives in repentance are perfect. Just turn back. Turn back without, imperfect, without perfect motives. You don't even know how imperfect your motives are. Don't wait until you have it all sorted out. Turn home because like a loving father, God will go out to meet you even though your bitterness still blinds you to seeing him accurately. Turn back to him even though you are blind and so slow to see how you trust him, so quickly to forget about him, and so unconcerned about how unjustly you accuse him of all kinds of injustice. Just don't wait for all your motives, motives to align perfectly. Turn back. He will work with you. He is a gracious God. But as he works with you, he will bring you to fuller repentance and repentance that bears life-giving fruit. So that's the first irony of Naomi's imperfect repentance. The second is the irony that we see of redemption as illustrated in Ruth's unquestioning loyalty. We pick up in verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you and your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may come, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Fresh with the grief of her son's death, son's deaths, Naomi hasn't thought that far ahead. Who does in grief? At first, she sets out toward Israel with her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. But eventually, it dawns on her that, no, you know, that this just isn't going to work out. Naomi doesn't have any other sons for them to marry. And in ancient culture, family was everything. And so having no prospect of marriage meant lasting destitution. So if Orpah and Ruth returned with her to Israel, 
They would be two more mouths to feed. And not only that, Naomi would be dependent on her extended family. And so having these two Moabite women to care for would make life even harder for Naomi. And these daughter-in-laws, they're Moabite women, which it would be an embarrassment. They're a constant reminder of Naomi forsaking God and leaving the promised land and marrying her sons off to foreigners who worshipped other gods. And so Naomi appeals to Ruth and Orpah to return to their mother's house. And logically, this makes more sense, right? They'll be better cared for by their own people. Now, these two ladies are, love Naomi. They, they've been kind to her, and Naomi obviously cares for them. She does not want them to feel as though she's rejecting them. She cares for them. And even in her grief, she has the wherewithal to maintain a sense of diplomacy. When she appeals to them to return to their mother's house, she blesses them saying, may the Lord grant you rest in the house of your husband. But Naomi is also suggesting that it's only by departing from her that they'll be blessed. Notice verse three, it it is bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. In other words, she assumes that if they stay with her, the Lord's hand will turn against them. Now, maybe Naomi believes that she's uniquely toxic, that that she is unredeemable. Or maybe she's just that convinced that God is uniquely cruel to her and anyone connected to her. Whether Naomi believes that she's unredeemable or God is cruel, her grief runs deep. And it runs right into cynicism. Now notice how Orpah and Ruth respond. While Orpah has compassion on her mother-in-law, she continues to make the sensible choice. It's the same kind of reasonable choice that Naomi made years earlier when she and Elimelech left for Israel. They evaluate the situation and take stock and plant yourself where the grass is greener. So after weeping together, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye and returns to Moab. Ian Duguid describes Orpah's choice this way. With that simple, sensible choice, Orpah marched off out of the pages of the Bible. She went back to her people and back to her gods. Yet though she certainly didn't see it that way, there was nonetheless a cost to her logical choice. For who remembers Orpah? But Ruth, however, clings to Naomi in verse 14. She clings with unquestioned loyalty. And her choice would prove to have historic consequences. And we pick up in verse 15. And it says, Naomi, speaking to Ruth, says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. What beautiful words of loving devotion. And this interaction reveals several striking elements of Ruth's loyalty. Unlike Orpah, she's undeterred by the reasonableness of Naomi's arguments of how much better it would be for her in Moab. Ruth doesn't want to return to Moab, nor does she want to return to the God she grew up with. She's already tried that. She's done with that. She wants to stay with Naomi, and she wants Naomi's God in verse 16. 
It seems that Ruth's loyalty transcends mere loyalty to Naomi. It's rooted in the loyalty to Naomi's God. Now, we don't know all of what Ruth understood about the Lord. The text doesn't tell us, but I'm sure living with a Jewish family for any time, even one that was not necessarily living in full obedience to the Lord, even if they just kept the traditions and explained the meaning of those, would have had a big impact if they had practiced Passover. We know that Ruth uses the Lord's name, the Lord's personal name in verse 17. So she knows that the Lord is, I am who I am. He's not like man-made idols that she grew up with. He is the one true God. He's not conveniently construed by man and made into whatever we want him to be. He's Lord over all. And because she's made in the image of God and the law of God is written on her heart, and because as Romans 1.20 tells us, Ruth would know God's invisible attributes and his eternal power and divine nature. Why would she know those things? Because they've been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. So we don't know exactly what she knows about the Lord, but she knows enough. The point is she knows enough to connect the dots and to determine it's far better to throw in your lot with the Lord and his people. And so she does. Even if it means moving toward greater uncertainty and lingering want. Unlike Orpah, she would rather embrace emptiness in Israel where the Lord abideth with his people than return to what she would have in Moab. And that's why Ruth, I think, becomes the namesake of the story. The book is titled Ruth, not the journey of Naomi. It's not even titled Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. It's titled Ruth after a Moabite woman who just had a taste of the Lord's goodness and said, that is better than any temporary comfort. And so I will endure all so I can be with him and his people. It's the irony the faithfulness of someone who's an outsider. Certainly, Naomi had grown disillusioned with God's grace, and you would expect her to be worshiping God in spirit and truth, but it's Ruth, who grew up not knowing anything about the Lord, who seems more hopeful. Unfortunately, that's often the case. We as God's people grow so accustomed to our privilege that we fail to fully appreciate the Lord and his goodness and the blessings of being part of his covenant community. And sometimes it takes those who grew up outside the family of faith to remind us of what we have. So there's the irony of redemption as illustrated in Ruth's unquestioning loyalty and Naomi's imperfect repentance. But last we see redemption, the irony of it, in in Naomi's blinding pain. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, Naomi said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. 
Now notice the contrast between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth's loyalty to Naomi here is remarkable. She promises to stick with her like glue through thick and thin, even to the point of death. Such loyalty is so remarkable that thousands of years later, we still quote her words in wedding ceremonies, we write it on plaques, and we frame it and we hang it. But what's equally remarkable is Naomi's muted response. Look at verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth's words of loving devotion are met with silence, not gratitude. The love of Ruth hardly makes a dent into Naomi's heart. And yet, Ruth is determined to love her mother-in-law. Upon arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi recounts her trials. She says, I went away full and the Lord brought me back empty. And in her pain, which this always happens when we're in pain, our pain often shifts and forms our narrative just enough to keep us trapped. Naomi's shifted the meaning of full and empty here. Did she forget that the reason for leaving Israel in the first place, was because she thought she was not full? If she was full, then why'd leave? And if empty, then who is this loving, beautiful daughter-in-law next to you, devoted to your goodness? Like Naomi, we're all tempted to shift the narrative when we're in pain. And when we're in pain, we're tempted to reorganize the data points in a way that reinforce our bitterness or anger with God. Sometimes we might dismiss data that includes our foolish decisions along the way that may have contributed to the pain or at least amplified it. And we might also eliminate data, miss points where God has provided mercies and gifts, providential mercies to sustain us through. She's not even mentioning Ruth here. Ruth goes unmentioned. Here's the redemptive irony. The irony is that When Naomi is in the depth of her cynicism and pain, when she is literally enslaved in bitterness, it is at that moment that God's steadfast love shines through to her. Ruth remains by her side, neither rebuking Naomi nor abandoning her. And Naomi is so bitter, she changes her name to Mara, If you don't know, Mara means bitterness. And we first come across that name in Exodus 15. After God had brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea, they quickly forgot the way God had been faithful to them and had provided for them and protected them. For after three days, three days, they are grumbling in the wilderness because they don't have any water. And when God leads them to water, they drink of it, but the water, it's bitter. And so they grumble against the Lord, saying, this water stinks, and they call it Mara, bitterness. And while they're grumbling to the Lord, the Lord proves his steadfast love, not just giving them water, but he says, Moses, throw that log in the water, and the water turns sweet. Now, like Israel, Naomi's wilderness experience caused her to forget the steadfast love of the Lord. Naomi, like Israel, grumbled bitterly against the Lord. Call me Mara. But had Naomi thought back to that story, she may have realized, as one commentator said, 
that just as God can turn bitter water into sweet water, so he can restore joy and peace to embittered hearts. Duguid adds, it may have renewed Naomi's hope had she remembered that the next stop on the wilderness road for the people of the Exodus was not more of the same, but Elim, the place of rest, with its 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. See, God may have us go through a season of destitution and despair where we are overwhelmed with bitterness and anxiety. But we never know what that next step on the wilderness road may be. God is a God who restores. And he not only restores, he restores fully and he gives back for the years that were taken away. And as we'll discover, and Naomi will see this too, she'll find her joy renewed. For it just so happens that when Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread Bethlehem is having a barley harvest. And we will discover that God has gone ahead of her. The truly ironic thing is God's steadfast love endures always and is ever-present even in our moments of darkest grief, bitterness, and cynicism. Now in closing, every book of the Bible, the book of Ruth included, celebrates God's redeeming grace, which is capable of turning every tragedy on its head Redemption is the sweetest of ironies. Redemption comes despite imperfect repentance and despite pain that keeps us from seeing God's steadfast love. And redemption is filled with these little providences, these little gifts along the way. Someone like a daughter-in-law or a loyal friend or a faithful church or loving parents. That's the irony of redemption. And from ancient times to today, this grace is needed by insiders people of the family of God who've wandered down the road to nowhere. And it's available to outsiders who've already lived in the road to nowhere and they want to know the Lord as their God. And the beauty of the redemptive irony illustrated in the book of Ruth is most vividly illustrated in the New Testament where we see God himself going down the road to nowhere in the person of Jesus. But he goes down the road to nowhere, not in disobedience like Elimelech or Naomi, but in faithful pursuit of us to bring us home to the promised land. And even part of the story of Ruth, Ruth herself points to the gospel. The gospel removes all doubt that God really has our best interests at heart. Ruth points to Jesus in her own way. For it was Jesus who left his father's house. It's Jesus who committed to live with us even to the point of death. It is Jesus who abides with us as we grumble bitterly and say, call me bitterness, and he just remains. And he turns out to be a blessing. The blessing through whom our entire fortune is restored. This is the hope of the gospel. As we absorb it, we, re- we realize the hope of redemption when we have not just a new family, but a lasting hope. Let us pray. God, we confess, <clears throat> sometimes we're just worn down by the tragic ironies of life. 
We see it all around us. We see God's people who should be loving and serving you, betraying you. And instead of going a different way, we often make it personal. We walk that same path. We who should live with you as our king, don't. Oh Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Forgive us for having such short patience of not just waiting upon you, of forgetting that you are the only God who has proven to enter into the pain with us, that you bore it on a cross, that you are quite familiar with pain and suffering, innocent pain and suffering, and you give us everything we need to endure it, for you give us yourself. But God, we thank you that not all irony is tragic Much irony is redemptive. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning that is trying to find their way back to you. Help them place their faith in you, not in their perfect repentance. Let them know your grace, that you will come and refresh them, refresh their joy. Father, we thank you for the little providences along the way. We thank you for this church. We thank you for godly friends that point us toward you. But most of all, we thank you that you are the God who constantly proves your steadfast love in the midst of our pain. Lord, do that in the lives of your people this morning. You know the pain of individuals in this church in far more intimate ways than any of us do. Oh Lord, we pray, comfort your people. Show people your steadfast love in the person of Christ who promises never to leave us and nothing but death shall separate him and not even that, for he rose to conquer it. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.